The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please turn in your Bible to the end of Mark's Gospel, chapter 16. We come to the conclusion of this important Gospel series, this bold, direct account of the Gospel, the most concise of the Gospel accounts, that has an abrupt ending. And, and why might we ask, does Mark's Gospel end so mysteriously, so abruptly, I believe that it's to show us the glory of the one who delivers us from all of our fears. All of those of us who are afraid of life, of death, loss, hurt, pain, sorrow, and suffering. Hear now God's word, Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed... Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is God's word. Father, I pray that you might meet with us, that you might use your word to address our own fears, our anxieties, our doubts. Might you renew our faith, our trust, and our courage, uh, that you indeed have conquered sin and death. We pray this through Jesus' name. Amen. So what drives away our fears? Children, of course, are, when afraid, look to their parents for comfort. Children are afraid of the dark, afraid of what is lurking in the closet, afraid of getting lost. Just this past week, I took my children to Hershey Park, and I took a little breather, and uh, while my kids were riding a ride and sat on, a, on one of the benches, and as I sat there, I saw a little boy, no more than seven or eight, running frantically, tears running down his eyes, down his face. And it was obvious to me and everyone else observing this that he had been separated from his parents and was desperately looking for them. Parents console their children by their presence. 
to assure them that everything will be all right. But as every parent knows, there are things beyond our control. There are frightening things that we cannot protect our children from, perhaps until they are older and better able to handle such adult things. Parents cannot ultimately drive away the fears of their children. What about politicians and people in authority? North Korea launches another ICBM threatening the Pacific coast of America. A terrorist once more slaughters innocent people in a public crowded space. A once trusted financial institution goes bankrupt, causing a domino effect triggering economic devastation. In response to these things, politicians promise more defense, more police, stronger borders, more regulation. All of these things provide temporary relief at best, but no more than a false sense of security and fail to deliver us from our greatest fears. What about professionals? There are many professions that thrive on fear. We fear disease. We fear death. We go to doctors. We fear our financial future circumstances. We go to financial planners and advisors, psychologists and counselors, even pastors, we could say, are in the fear business. People come to their pastor or their counselor for fear for their marriage, their children, their own spiritual state. And we do our best to provide remedies and assurances, sound advice and direction for people's lives. But all of these things fall short. We cannot deliver people from their worst fears. Now, I have not done an exhaustive study on this, but I speculate that the most common frequent command in Scripture is do not be afraid. Why is that? Why does God repeat Do not be afraid over and over and over. We find it right here in our passage. In verse 6, when the angel exhorts these women to not be alarmed, he represents the God who entered the garden to console Adam and Eve, our first frightened parents. It's the same God who sent his son to deliver us from the paralyzing fear of death and the judgment to come. There is only one who delivers us from all of our fears, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. You recall how Jesus' body was buried right before sundown going into the Sabbath day, and there was not time to anoint him according to Jewish custom with various spices that were designed not to preserve the body, but to lessen the stench of decay. They passage that I read opens with the women coming to the tomb early in the morning on Easter, the first Easter morn, and they come not with fear, but in sorrow and love. The male disciples were hiding in fear from the authorities, but the women, more free, less threatened by the Jewish authorities, whom took little notice of women coming to the tomb, come with an impractical act of love and devotion, wanting to be near him, like, like lingering around of the viewing of a, the tragic loss of a departed loved one. Pastor or theologian Sinclair Ferguson says that it is a psychological as well as a moral impossibility that the early church 
manufactured these verses. Well, how can we say that? How do we know that this is an authentic account and not a fabrication? Well, as many have said, no one who was seeking to fabricate the resurrection story would choose this way to tell it. For starters, women in the first century were second class, whose testimonies were not upheld in the courts, neither in the Jewish culture or in the Greco-Roman culture. And by the way, Christianity has done more to advance the freedom and equality of women than any other world movement in history. But notice how Mark, the gospel writer, within eight verses, chapter 15, verse 40, to chapter 16, verse 1, he records the name of these three women no less than three times. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, uh, Salome. This repetition is Mark's way of confirming that this is a historical account and not a legend. Uh, eyewitnesses can be cross-examined. These are footnotes. These are source citations. These women would have still been alive at the writing of this gospel account. If anyone desired to ask whether these things were the case, they could go and seek out these women eyewitnesses. Another note from history is that Greek philosopher Celsus wrote in the second century, in a, very antagonistically against Christianity, uh, debunking the resurrection story on the basis that the first eyewitnesses were women. Celsus, like uh, many of that, of that time, would use that to, as proof in their minds that this was a fictional story. And so the only reason, the only reason for Mark to include women eyewitnesses of the resurrection was due to the fact that they really were present. That they merely reported what they saw and heard. This story, we'll see that it breathes with a kind of authenticity. These women are following their hearts, not their heads. They're not expecting resurrection. No one was. Although Jesus had repeated several times that he would rise again, no less than three times in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 8, 9, and 10. Why bother bringing expensive spices if you were not expecting a dead body? And notice that on the way, the women realized that they had no means of getting inside the tomb. Who is going to move this great stone? They were so wrapped up in their grief, they hadn't thought through the practical obstacle that would require great labor and tools that they did not possess. Here's another detail in the text that adds to its credibility. And we can find a parallel here for any of us who have gone through the tragic loss of a loved one. You're not thinking clearly. You're not working out all the logistical details in a proper way. And, you know, if you were writing a credible piece of fiction about this account, where Jesus has already repeated himself that he would rise on the third day, you would have at least one of the disciples thinking things through and saying perhaps, you know, guys, it's, it's the third day. Maybe we ought to go to the tomb and, and take a look. Couldn't hurt. That would be reasonable. 
But no one said that because the resurrection was inconceivable to the Jews. That they were no more inclined to believe the bodily resurrection than we are in our secular materialistic age in which we live. You know, Jews believed in a general resurrection at the end of the age. But they did not believe that an individual would rise again with a resurrected, glorified body in this time of history. In fact, the resurrection was not a message that was looking for an audience. Not only did the Jews not anticipate it, the Greeks did not accept the resurrection. The Greeks believed that the body was a prison for the soul. Death for them was escape, release. And so the disciples did not have a vested interest to preach a fabricated resurrection story. There was no market for that type of story. The only reason they would preach the resurrection because this is what happened. This is what was reported by first the women and then Peter and John and the other disciples who witnessed, were eyewitnesses of his resurrection glory. And of course, there are classical arguments against the resurrection. You've perhaps heard these before in Eastern sermons, and we'll record them, we'll review them briefly here. One is that the disciples stole the body that somehow they managed to get in there and take the body and hide it from the public eye. But this theory has many problems. One is, how would the disciples overcome a Roman guard getting past their armor, their professionalism? Uh, the Roman guard, the guard that would uh, be put to death uh, if uh, they failed in their duty. How would they remove the stone? The physical barriers, perhaps, were even secondary to the mental barriers. The disciples were in no mental condition to do any kind of trickery of stealing the body of their beloved rabbi, who just devastated them by his surprise loss. They were defeated. They were despondent. Why bother? And who would believe their story? No, the disciples had no motivation to steal the body. A second theory is that Jesus perhaps was resuscitated in the coolness of the cave inside the tomb. But this defies the testimony of a Roman centurion who supervised the crucifixion. The testimony of Joseph of Arimathea, a nobleman of, of, of the Jews. And, of course, these women eyewitnesses as well, who all were eyewitnesses of his death and burial. And if Jesus were resuscitated, would that truly inspire the disciples to lead and develop the church as recorded in the scriptures and as we know from church history? A third failed theory is that the disciples all experienced a a group hallucination that, of course, during tragic times we might pine away and long and fantasized something to be true that is not. But according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, there were more, more than 500 eyewitnesses. That's a lot of people to hallucinate the same false vision. And so against all these theories, is incredulity is a, a perhaps more faith to believe in these false theories than the resurrection account that we have here in God's word. 
You know, there have been many people throughout history who've set out to disprove the resurrection, like Lee Strobel and others, only to be overwhelmingly convinced by the evidence. If the resurrection story was a hoax, it would not have survived the persecution. It would not have survived the pressure of their Jewish uh, fellow uh, Jewish citizens and uh, the Greco-Roman culture. No, the most reasonable explanation is that these women found the tomb empty. And the disciples were eyewitnesses of their resurrected Lord. These three indisputable facts, an empty tomb, a multitude of eyewitnesses, perhaps most convincingly, the changed lives of Jesus' followers. How else do you explain these cowardly men turning into lion-hearted proponents of the gospel message? Each of these 11 men would suffer martyrdom. Not proclaiming that Jesus was some great moral teacher, nor merely a new way to know God, but the bodily resurrection. Look in the book of Acts. What is the message consistently from the mouths of the disciples that Jesus Christ rose bodily from the dead? He is alive at the right hand of the living God. You know, men will die for many noble causes, but they will not endure torture and death for something they know to be a lie. Today, secularists scoff at our Bible its record of miracles and even institutional religion itself. Common today is a, a faith in science or, or the idea that our race will evolve into something better, a, a new and improved humanity that's less frail, less prone to evil and oppression. Many people in our day envision a world free of ignorance, poverty, disease, discrimination, oppression, and other evils. But their efforts are more and more frustrated by the stubbornness of the frail human condition. Despite our many, many technological advances, the human race has not advanced all that much morally, but rather has digressed. In a response, many people, many seculars today, live under a canopy of fear and dread seeking control through government institutions, through science and education. And the secular naturalist, I would argue, is actually onto something. That it's this deep desire for perfection, for renewal, for restoration. It's like, like the, the fading memory that our race was once in a, once in a better condition. This, this aching desire to return, to make our way back home someday. This longing will never be satisfied with the advances of human wisdom, education, technological exploration. But this longing is met with the hope of the resurrection. Core to Christian Orthodox teaching, the Bible affirms that we will be made new incorruptible, immortal, not by the devices of men, but by the transforming power and grace of God. Well, our passage ends with these women eyewitnesses 
in fear and trembling rather than joy, and perhaps that's even a mark of its authenticity. It doesn't end all, all tidy uh, and, and wrapped up. You know, nobody fabricating the story would end the story this way. But I would contend that throughout Mark's gospel, fear is man's response to the breaking in of the power of God. The disciples and others experienced great fear when Jesus calmed a storm, when Jesus delivered a man held captive by a legion of demons, when Jesus set his face with determination to go to Jerusalem to die. Fear is the response of men and women when Jesus demonstrates his power and majesty as the Son of God. So we contend that this text, Mark chapter 16, ends at verse 8. Verses 9 through 20 are not in the oldest and most reliable of historic manuscripts. And it's possible that there was another ending for Mark that's been lost in history, but I believe it's more likely uh, that this is not the case, but that these verses were added by perhaps a copyist tempted to tidy up the abrupt ending of Mark. Many scholars are pointing out that verses 9 through 20 are not written in the same style as the, the prior uh, portion of Mark's gospel. And in fact, it's a it's, it's kind of summary of teaching that is pulled from the other gospels and even early church tradition. Now, Mark's gospel ends abruptly. To emphasize the fact of the unexpected resurrection of Christ which was intrusive to his followers, just when they were getting used to the fact that he was dead. After two nights' sleep, or, or lack thereof, after having been rattled and disturbed by his arrest and his torture and his death, now have to contend with the fact that he is alive. He is really the Son of God. He will be with them forever, and fear is the initial reactions. They process the things they've seen and heard. And so these women eyewitnesses face, they encounter two surprises on that first Easter morning. First, the stone is removed. They have access to the tomb. Secondly, they meet a young man dressed in white, notably an angel, according to the other gospel accounts. He says to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. He points to the evidence. See where they laid him, referring to the burial cloths of the Lord. He gives us them the command to go and tell the disciples and Peter to meet him in Galilee, the home base of their three years of ministry together. Peter will come face to face with his failure to receive forgiveness and restoration. They will go to Galilee first, not in Jerusalem, the center of things, I think it's notable that the angel does not rebuke the women or send them with a message of rebuke to the disciples. The mere fact of Christ's resurrection account will be rebuke enough, convicting their hearts for their unbelief. But how do the women respond? The text says that they fled with great trembling. The word fled is the same verb used to describe the disciples in Mark 14 when they fled at the arrest of Jesus. So the men and the women both are fleeing in fear, in confusion, not knowing where to go. The women are silent and afraid at first. 
And we can step back and reflect and think about just what all the emotions that must have been going through the minds and hearts of the disciples during that long weekend. Despair. Regret. Misplaced expectations. Fear. Anger. Emptiness. Hopelessness. A resignation to return to their former way of life, not knowing where to go. They, they had been going somewhere, but now they hit a brick wall. They were going nowhere. And theirs was the fear that precedes hope and joy. You know, sometimes our, our negative emotions give us a false sense of comfort, a false measure of security. It's familiar, even if it's painful. You know, you, we, we fear that which we cannot control. And the disciples are very much afraid of something that is way beyond their control. All of his ministry, Jesus was in control. He was in control of people's health. He was in control of the demons and the powers. He was in control of the wind and the sea. Even when he was arrested, as Judas led the soldiers into the Mount of Olives, Jesus was still in charge. But then Jesus yielded himself to the Father's will to be handed over to evil men who would falsely accuse, who would torture him and have him crucified at the hands of the Romans. Jesus gave up control. He trusted himself into the Father's hand, the one who judges justly, the one who could bring good out of great evil. Jesus faced fear on our behalf. He faced the greatest fear and dread you and I have, the holy judgment of a righteous God. Jesus faced our worst fear so that you and I do not have to. And he confronts our greatest problem, our fear of death, of pain and sorrow, that the fear of the unknown that lies beyond the grave, the judgment that is to come. Friends, of course, our, the greatest threat to us is the holy judgment of Almighty God. The cross offers us our greatest hope. The assurance that we have forgiveness from God, that our penalty, our debt has been paid by the sacrifice of our Lord. But without the resurrection, the cross is meaningless. If there is no resurrection, the cross is just another tragedy of a good, moral man, a saint in human terms. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that that if there is no resurrection, we are to be pitied above all men because we're still in our sins. We need to understand the implications of resurrection. That Jesus has conquered sin and death. That there is hope beyond the grave. That there is hope for this life and the life to come. That we can live free from the bondage of sin, the fear of death. That we can have a living relationship with the Holy God who has made it possible for us to enter into his holy presence by the sacrifice of Christ. We sung this morning in worship from Amazing Grace, verse 2. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Isn't that beautiful? That it's the grace 
of God's gospel that strikes us with fear to recognize the gravity of our sin. And it also delivers us from our fears, recognizing that we are now accepted. We are clean. We are clothed in the righteousness of our beloved Savior. I love Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Friend, if your trust is in the living God through the work of Jesus Christ, you need not fear. All of your fears, all of your anxieties, all of the dread you experience in this life, all the regret, all the negative emotions, all the paralyzing baggage, bring to the cross of Christ and lay it at his feet and let his resurrection power deliver you to be a person of faith and trust in the work of God who has made it possible for you to be free from deliberating fear. See, the reality of the resurrection means that there is a God in control of the seeming chaos of this life. That there is a God who knows me, who lives in me, and has plans for me. The resurrection means that the trials of this life are temporary. And that God has a purpose in them. The resurrection means that this life is not all there is. A better life awaits for God's people. And yes, the resurrection gives us boldness to witness of a truly great God who has done mighty things on behalf of his people, one with whom we are glad to testify to others. We live in a world where people are running scared. Those who put their hope in government fear greatly when their candidate or their party is out of power. Those who put their hope in money fear when there's a a drop in the market. Those who put their hope in the approval of others are scared by rejection. Those who cling to comfort fear suffering. Those who long for familiarity fear change. Wouldn't it be great to live in a world without fear? To have no more anxiety, no more paralyzing fear of the unknown. Well, the Bible calls that heaven. The new heavens and the new earth is a place God's preparing for his people, a place where there is no more reason to be fear. He is the God who drives out all of our fears. Let me urge you to cast all your fears on him who raised Jesus from the dead, demonstrating in time, space, and history that he cares for you. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, thank you that you have delivered us from all of our fears to the work of your Son, the one you sent to live and to die, to rise again, who even now intercedes at your right hand. Meet us in our fears and our anxieties. Renew our faith. Help us to put our trust in you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.